Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. This week, we're talking about fairy tales. When I was a kid, The Princess and the Pea by Hans Christian Andersen was my absolute favorite story. I read it over and over again, marveling that the princess was so sensitive that she could feel a single pea beneath 20 mattresses and 20 feather beds. One of the cool things about fairy tales is that they have endured generation after generation and telling after retelling. Consider Beauty and the Beast. It was first published under that name in the 1700s. It has recognizable roots in far more ancient stories, like the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. In fact, researchers at Durham University believe that the tale is actually based on a story that's about 4,000 years old. Two fairy tale experts will join us to talk about the enduring appeal of Happily Ever After. Author Sarah Milanowski, who's in the studio, and Garth Nix, who'll join us by phone from Australia. Sarah is the author of Whatever After, a New York Times best-selling book series for 8 to 12-year-olds. The books follow Abby and her little brother Jonah as they fall into different fairy tales and accidentally mess things up. The siblings have to find a way to set things right. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Could you tell us first what inspired the Whatever After series? Well, I've always, always loved fractured fairy tales. Even as a kid, I loved to take fairy tales and just twist them up a little bit. For example, instead of um, The Princess and the Pea, when I told the story, it was The Princess and the M&M because I really hated vegetables and I loved chocolate. So I've always been a fan of changing them a little bit. Um, And then, you know, once I had children, I really wanted to inject some girl power into the story. So I decided that I would fracture the fairy tales with a little bit of girl power. The whatever after books have been called, quote, fairy tales with a feminist twist. Could you tell us what that means? Yes, absolutely. Well, I love fairy tales, but the truth is I was never 100% happy with the endings of the fairy tales, especially when I had daughters of my own and I'd start to tell them these stories and I would have to tell them, yes, that Cinderella could only leave her house when she was saved by the prince. And I kind of wanted Cinderella to leave her house by getting a job and maybe getting her own apartment. Or I didn't understand why uh, Snow White, you know, was dead until she got kissed and that was what saved her. I wanted Snow White to be able to also save herself. So when I when I knew I wanted to change the endings and fracture the stories of, of the fairy tales, I thought, that, well, this is my opportunity to give them a more feminist ending. Here's another master of fractured fairy tales. Garth Nix joins us by phone from Australia. Fantasy readers probably know Garth from his best-selling Old Kingdom series. Today, we're going to talk about his newest book for young adults, Frog Kisser. Hi, Garth. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's great to be here. 
First off, I wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about Frog Kisser and what the inspiration behind it was. Frog Kisser, as you can perhaps guess from the title, is uh, a fairy tale story, but it's my own particular take on a whole bunch of different fairy tales. Of course, one of them being The Princess and the Frog. Um, It's the story of a princess, Anya, who needs to kiss a frog to turn that frog back into a prince, but it's actually not her frog. It's her sister's frog. It's her sister's prince, I should say. And because it is her sister's prince, it's not straightforward. True love is not is not the case. She has to go on a quest to find the ingredients for a transmogrification reversal lip balm, which she needs to turn that frog back into a prince. And along the way, she discovers a whole lot of other people and sometimes not people who also need turning back into what they should be. Uh, so it's a quest story. It's a fairy tale story. Uh, it's, I hope, a lot of fun. Perhaps the back of the book sums it up pretty well. It says, talking dogs, mischievous wizards, an evil step stepfather, an amphibian overload, such is the life of a frog kisser. <laughs> In Frog Kisser, though, the princess rescues herself rather than waiting to be rescued. Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you manage to defy stereotypes without losing the mythic quality of fairy tales? That's a good question. I think the mythic power in fairy tales is is incredibly strong. I mean, that's one of the reasons that they've lasted for so long and why they're told and retold and and passed on and reinterpreted. So they, they actually do have enormous mythic power. And I think perhaps it's because they are so strong that you can play with them and you can reverse them and mix them up and so on. And people still recognise the core of the story. So I think it is because they are so powerful that that lets you play with them in, in interesting ways. And I guess in Frog Kisser, what I'm trying to do is take some very old, very potent stories and give them a modern twist, uh, something that reflects our modern society or, or how I would like our modern society to be, perhaps. And, and of course, women and girls do rescue themselves all the time. And I think that needs to be reflected in the story. I love that you're both breathing new life into these tales as old as time by injecting them with some girl power. Sarah, why do you think fairy tales have such an enduring power for kids? I think kids really like seeing um, good people be rewarded and evil people be punished. And a lot of fairy tales are very black and white. So I think that's definitely part of it. And I think that people can take, you know, any at any time you can take uh, something from the fairy tales and you could really relate to different things. I mean, everyone can relate to wanting to eat the candy house and everyone can relate to, you know, to having an evil person in their lives. And I think that's definitely a part of it. Garth, you've talked about this a little bit already, but why else do you think these stories remain so beloved? One reason is because they are such strong stories. Good stories last in the, in the same way that, that some jokes just go on and on and on and on. And sometimes they get a little bit transformed, but people will just keep telling them because, because they work. And people keep telling fairy tales and fables because they are such strong stories. But I think often one of the reasons they work is because many of them are about redressing wrongs that often are not redressed in real life. So in fairy tales and in fables, 
the bad people, the evil, the evildoers do get their comeuppance normally, uh, though it may not be straightforward. It might be, it might be more complex than that. But I think it appeals to it. It appeals to everyone the idea that that people who who do evil things will get punished, and that the good and deserving will get the rewards. So Cinderella will become a princess. Uh, you know, Snow White will get her revenge on on her evil stepmother who's tried to kill her, and, and so forth. People just really appreciate the, those stories. Uh, they love hearing them. They like telling them. And they like mixing them up and and retelling them. Speaking of retellings, the new Beauty and the Beast movie from Disney is coming out this month. Sarah, I wonder what your characters, Abby and Jonah, would think about the movie. Abby and Jonah would be super excited about the new Beauty and the Beast movie. They fell into the story of Beauty and the Beast in the book Beauty Queen. And uh, crazy things happened in there. They uh, At one point, they even turn into beasts. Yes, the magic goes, goes, uh, goes wild in Beauty <laughs> Queen. Let's give our listeners a taste of Abby and Jonah's adventures. Could you read from your latest Whatever After book? Yes, definitely. So the section I'm going to read from now is from uh, Whatever After Sugar and Spice, which is book 10. Abby and Jonah have fallen into the story of Hansel and Gretel, and they've met Hansel and Gretel. And they've decided that instead of letting Hansel and Gretel go through the whole horror of being trapped inside the witch's house, that instead they will take the witch's jewels, and which will give Hansel and Gretel some money, and then therefore they, they will be able to have a happy ending without having to actually get trapped in the witch's house. Right now, they've just noticed that there is a portal. They see their portal, which would take them home. Okay. The portal is still swirling. Mary Rose, I say to the portal, can you pause the swirling for like five minutes, please? Who's Mary Rose, Gretel asks. Oh, um, she's sort of like our travel agent, I say. Listen, guys, we need to get the jewels on the witch's coffee table. That way you'll be able to afford to buy food. Who's coming with me, Gretel? Are you crazy? Gretel asks. I'm not going into the witch's house. I'll go, says Hansel. Gretel puts her hand on his shoulder. And neither is my brother, she says. He stays with me. Ah, she's a good sister, just like me. I look inside the house again. The jewels probably don't even belong to the witch. I'm sure she stole them from someone else, so I shouldn't feel bad about stealing from her. She's evil. She eats children. I'll be like Robin Hood, taking from the rich to give to the poor. Taking from the witch to give to the poor. Jonah's eyes light up. I'll come. Sounds fun. Do you think the door is locked? We could always eat through it, I say, as we step closer to the entrance. He turns the handle. It's open! he says, with a trace of disappointment. He totally wanted to eat through the door. I glance at my watch. Okay, guys, I tell Hansel and Gretel, Jonah and I are going to run inside the house. You two keep a lookout here. If you see anyone, yell out. Okay, Gretel says, looking at the swirling tree. I can't blame her. It's pretty cool. Jonah carefully pushes open the door. I step forward, Prince at my heels. I poke my head in and look around. Hello, I call out. No one answers. Hello, anyone home? Still no answer. The witch is definitely not here. Perfect. Okay, let's go in. But be careful, I tell Jonah. We don't know much about this witch. 
Except that she likes kid pie, Jonah says. Yeah, except that. I was trying to forget that part. Don't touch anything, I tell Prince. He wags his tail in understanding. We step in further and look around. I'm grabbing the jewels, I say. I run to the table and pick up the tray. Wish I had a bag to put them in. Let me see if she has a plastic one under the sink, Jonah says. I wait by the jewels and look out the front window. Hansel and Gretel are holding hands in front of the portal. Gretel looks at Hansel. She nods. He nods back. They both smile. And then they go running straight for the swirling purple in the center of the tree. Wait, I cry. Stop. Do they wait? Do they stop? No, they just keep going right into our portal home. No. (laughs) That's wonderful. I can't wait to find out what happens next. Now, Sarah, you have two daughters, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. Yes. How do they inspire your work or how do they give you ideas? Uh, They are, they are always my inspirations now. Um, I think Chloe, well, specifically when I started to tell her the fairy tales and I was noticing how the endings were horrible and I couldn't actually say them to her was when I wanted to, uh, to start fracturing them for her, um, anyway. But I think with Chloe, Uh, Now I read her all of the books that I write and I get to see her actual reactions to them. So I I, I read them to her when they're in proof pages before they actually print. And it's really, really valuable for me as a writer. I've never read my novels out loud before, even though that's one of the basic rules that writers are always told, you know, that you should read your books out loud. I'd never done it. And now I'm reading my entire novel out loud. And it's fascinating to see someone react in real time to the story. And I can make changes as she laughs or doesn't laugh. Or, you know, she once told me for one of the books, no, mom, that's very cliched. You should really change that. So I'm like, okay, I will. I always take her advice. And she has very strong opinions now about what fairy tales that I should fracture and which ones I shouldn't. And she she likes to tell me what to do. <laughs> what a treat. That's yeah. amazing. Garth, you've said that for fantasy to work, it needs to have a solid foundation in reality. Could you give us some examples of how you weave reality into your fiction and how that breathes life into fantasy? Uh, it's true. I am a great believer that fantasy needs a solid foundation of reality to work, that you need to make all... I guess all the sort of human stuff and 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 a lot of the background to to be real and feel real and, and generally that means drawing on the real world or drawing on history or things that we know are in fact real and then you add in elements of the fantastical. So in Frog Kisser, while there's a lot of a quite light-hearted fantasy and things um, which are not real, I also but I, I I try and make the main characters feel like real people. And this includes not just the human characters, but also characters like Ardent, the royal dog, uh, who, yes, he's a talking dog. And so, of course, he has a different character from a, from a dog in our world who can't talk. But I try and give him all the dog-like characteristics that you would expect from, from a real dog. Um, and one of the interesting things in this book is that I'd started writing Frog Kisser and I'd been working on it for maybe three or four months, and I'd been writing about Ardent, the royal dog. And around that time, our family had the opportunity to adopt a dog who was being who had to be, another family had to give him up. And this this dog came around uh, for a tryout, as it were, and he was exactly like Ardent in the book. He had all the dog-like characteristics 
of Ardent. Uh, so it was almost like I'd, I'd conjured him up. I'd, I'd written, I'd written him into into reality, and that's our, our dog Sam, who came for a tryout and, and and never left. So it's always interesting how you try and make things real, and then you find them reflected in the real world. You know, it's it's always kind of funny, but but certainly one of the foundations of reality that I hope is through all my books is that the people feel real, the characters feel real, even if they aren't actually people. And I also use uh, things like you know, weather and consequences, I think are very important. If, if things happen in the book, which in the real world would uh, mean huge complications, you, you have to deal with them in the book as well. You can't just use magic to fix things uh, so, that, so they don't matter anymore. Uh, it's it's very important that the consequences of people's actions and the things that happen uh, are dealt with in a way that feels realistic, uh, even if it does involve the fantastical or does involve magic. And I guess ultimately what I try and do is that when I'm writing a story, I try and make it feel real to myself. And if I can believe it while I'm writing it, then I think the readers will believe it too. The world in Frog Kisser is certainly one that I'd like to believe is real. Would you mind reading an excerpt for our listeners? Sure. Chapter one, in which Morvan's denim is turned into a frog. The scream was very loud and went on for a very long time. Princess Anya, who was reading in the castle library, ignored it at first, but eventually lifted her head from her book to listen. That sounds bad said Gottfried, the librarian, in his quavering, high-pitched voice. Disturbed by the sound, he immediately turned into an owl and began to vomit up a nicely packaged parcel of bones from the mouse he'd had for breakfast. It was something he did when under stress, turning into an owl, that is. The vomiting just came with the shape. It does, Anya frowned. It was her older sister Morvan screaming, which was not unusual, but the intensity and duration of this particular scream were quite out of the ordinary. Anya shut her book with an emphatic thump and latched it closed, since it was a copy of The Adventures of a Sorceress Typesetter's Apprentice, and the words inside would otherwise climb off the page and go wandering around the library. In fact, there were still several words missing from an earlier reading, including the particularly troublesome pair of Instantly and Forthwith, which Gottfried now believed had escaped the castle altogether or had been eaten by one of the dogs. The screaming continued as Anya hurried out of the library, across the inner courtyard to the main part of the castle, and up the private stair to her sister's rooms. Morvan was the heir to the kingdom, at least theoretically, so she had more space than Anya's little room. The sisters had not one, but two step-parents, so the matter of inheritance was a complicated one. This was one of the most frequent questions Anya was asked later in life. How is it possible to have two step-parents and no actual parents? The ants ended up being rather straightforward. Their mother, who had been the ruling queen of the little kingdom of Trelonia, had died when Morvan was six and Anya was three. Their father remarried a year later to Countess Iselda. So they had a stepmother who was expected to be quite evil, but mainly turned out to be a very enthusiastic botanist. She was not interested in the children at all, for good or ill, only in plants. But then their father died a year after his marriage to Countess Iselda and their stepmother married Duke Ricard. So the girls had two step-parents. Their stepmother, the botanist, wasn't a huge problem, but as it turned out, their step-stepfather was evil and wanted to be the king. 
Thank you, Garth. Now, before we let you go, could both of you tell us what you're working on? Right at the moment, um, I'm just just starting work on uh, actually the second book in a series that I'm doing with my friend. And the first one of those books is a book called Have Sword Will Travel, which comes out from Scholastic, I think, in October of, of this year. But I'm also, at the same time, because I, I always have lots of projects on the go, I'm also writing another big big fantasy uh, for the older young adult audience, um, which is not related to any of my previous fantasies. It's a, it's a whole new world. Uh, so that's another thing, kind of, kind of a secret project since I haven't, uh, hasn't been announced as yet and keeping the title under wraps and so on. You'll have to keep us posted on that one. Sarah, what about you? Uh, now I am just finishing the special edition. It's whatever after Abby in Wonderland. And Abby falls into a novel for the first time, not a fairy tale. And it's a little bit longer than the rest of them in the series. And it, it's she doesn't fall in with her brother this time like she does in all the other books. Instead, she falls in with three of her friends. So it's definitely a little bit different than the rest of the series. I can't wait. Thanks again to Sarah and Garth for sharing their stories with us. And thank you for joining us. We hope we've inspired you to revisit and possibly fracture your favorite fairy tale.